Welcome back to another week of Latter-day Conversations. Uh, we got some other fun questions for you guys this week, and feel free, as always, to uh, mention any other questions you might have in the forum below. Um, we'd love to hear from a few more of you. Uh, this first question we have is going to be a lot of fun. Let's see where it takes us, and I'll ask this to you, Mike. The question is this. Is it okay to criticize church leaders privately or publicly? All right. Um, st pretty straightforward question. Um, I, I haven't done a ton of research on this, but I know that there is um, a Dallin H. Oaks quote that is often uh, used on this topic. And if you just take the, the small little snippet of his quote, it sa he says, it's wrong to criticize leaders of the church, even if the criticism is true. So obviously there's more to his talk um, and I'll put the reference to that in the show notes um, because, you know, when you take a little sound bites of people talking or a tiny ex excerpt out of context, obviously it's going to misrepresent the point, but the point that he's making, and this is what I would say too, in answer to the question based on uh, just my opinion and my experience being in the church and what I think is proper and wise is that no, I, I don't think it is proper to criticize the, the leaders of the church, especially publicly. Um, in our culture, I think there's the, the popular, it's, it's kind of more popular to just put uh, church leaders on blast and they think of this, you know, trickle up revelation kind of stuff. Like if we put enough pressure on the brethren about this political issue or this and that, you know, eventually it's going to affect them. And that's how, that's how we deal with it. You know, this is a democratic church and we, the people define the doctrine. And if the brethren get out of line, it's our job to stir them up. You know, that that's totally wrong. Um, when we're coming to a church, which um, is, it's not a democracy where the doctrine is defined by the people. It is a church where the doctrine is given from heaven, from the top down. Um, so of course, you know, there are lots of places you could take this when you, you go on a small scale, like, all right, what about my bishop? you know, was verbally abusing me or, you know, even physically abusing me or something. It's like, okay, of course, you know, there's going to be some, <laughs> some line here to draw. Don't, don't be an idiot. Uh, <laughs> you know, if there, if there's physical harm happening or if it's outright, um, you know, inaccurate doctrine that has having severe implications on the board, I think that's a separate issue, but for now I'll just keep it simple and maybe we can delve into that if we want, but I'll start with that, Cade, and uh, let me know, what do you, what do you think? And uh, you have anything to add to that? Yeah. Yeah. I like kind of the direction you're heading. Um, I, uh, th there, there's a, a quote from Joseph Smith where he kind of talks about, he says essentially that, uh, and this is probably not word for word, but he says that the eagerness to accuse others is of the devil. And I think sometimes when you get into this world of trying to condemn others or criticize others or condemn others, uh, you can really find yourself in a, in a sticky situation. Because kind of like you were mentioning, um, we all have the right to receive revelation, right? And, and this is something that's been proclaimed <laughs> since the <laughs> beginning of this church and uh, not just in this dispensation either, right? It's, it's an eternal doctrine. Every single person always has had the right to revelation to uh, guide their lives right if, and uh, I, I don't know I, I think that sometimes we get to this point where we feel like we're so self-righteous so good um, that we can go out and condemn uh, specifically right when we, when we talk about the brethren I, I think of the uh, core of the 12 or the first presidency right um, and the other general authorities of the church and 
I, I think uh, Harold B. Lee, he actually speaks on this just a little bit. He, he essentially says that um, before we start condemning others, we should take an honest look at ourselves in the mirror, right? Um, and he, he gives an example in one of his talks. Uh, I, I believe it was, I'll have to look up to see what it was called. I think it's called Divine Revelation, if I remember right. Um, but he, he tells a story of, of, a, of a man who basically was criticizing his bishop or something like that um, for some of the positions that you're taking on certain things. And uh, long story short, he sat down with uh, Harold B. Lee, who at the time was not an apostle, I don't believe. And, and he, he kind of explains the story of, of this man where he's sitting down to talk to him and he's like, okay, well, you obviously disagree with, you know, these things and you're criticizing him pretty harshly in public. And uh, he, then he asks him a few simple questions. He's like, are you living the word of wisdom? And the man re responded, no. <laughs> you know, are, are you living the law of chastity? No. And, and, and so on and so on and so on. And, and, and Harold B. Lee kind of expounds this principle that um, we are in no right to condemn others when we ourselves um, are living in such a degree where we aren't even clean enough to receive revelation for ourselves. Um, and, I, and I think that's kind of the direction that Christ takes it in some degree too, right? That um, sometimes we're so worried about the moat in other people's eyes that we forget the beam in our own. Um, and I don't know, I, I think that there's, there's, a, there's, there's a really bad spirit about having this, like I started with, this eagerness to go about and accuse or criticize others. If, if it's out of self-gratification or to, you know, uh, brush it off of your shoulder almost to, 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 um, to, to steady the, 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 the arc as it is supposedly falling, right, In, to your eye at least. Um, and I think there's a very dangerous direction to, to go with that. And uh, let me let me get this pulled up. I have uh, let me find there's a there's a quote by Joseph Smith where he he goes out and he talks about this same principle and he says um, he says that I'll give you one of the keys of the mysteries of the kingdom. It is an eternal principle that has existed with God from all eternity. That man who rises up to condemn others, finding fault with the church, saying that they are out of the way, while he himself is righteous, then know assuredly that as that man is on the high road to apostasy, and if he does not repent, will apostatize as God lives. Um, and, and, I, and I think that's a, a, a very forceful statement, but it's very true too, right? That I think as soon as we start rising up and criticizing these brethren who are charged to shoulder the kingdom of God, we really start um, apostatizing in a real sense, right? If you don't believe in the system God has ordained, if you don't believe to some degree in the in the men and women he has called and appointed to hold the keys to preside over his kingdom, um, then you're basically apostatizing already in your hearts, right? You're, you're, you're losing faith in the power that God has to, to do his own work. Um, and I don't know, I, I think that there's a lot of caution that can be given in that. But that's not to say, I, I also want to clarify, I don't believe that uh, you shouldn't have the right to your own opinion either. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Well put. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm seeing there, there are different angles we have to hit on this um, different situations people could be talking about, but yeah, uh, I like rounding that out. Uh, so just to re reiterate here a little, I, I think the common criticisms that we see in this day are maybe someone on social media does a post where they, you know, they take a quote um, out of context or in context of a church leader, or, you know, maybe some doctrine or principle and they criticize it and they publicize their views on it and say how they, they believe that this person is wrong and don't agree with it. I, 
I think as members who are endowed, who have made sacred covenants in the temple, um, even to the you know degree of the law of consecration, we've covenanted all, all that we have and are, and, um, you know, for us to go out and to criticize God's anointed, God's anointed and elect, um, who he, whom he has called and he knows they're imperfect, but to go out and criticize them is a very dangerous ground. And I would strongly suggest not to ever do that. Don't ever, uh, criticize God's anointed. And yes, they, they are, you know, fallible. Um, but I think we can have assurance, take assurance in the fact that um, uh, who was it in the manifesto that said that God would never allow the prophet to uh, lead them astray. And if they Wilf- did, he would Wilf- take Wilf- them Woodruff. out of place. Yeah, Wilfred Woodruff. So um, that promise is there. You know, God is not going to let the prophet lead us astray. Uh, you will never go wrong by following the prophet. But by going against him, you're kicking against the pricks. And uh, uh, on that note of kicking against the pricks from DNC 121, reminds me of a good um, way to give criticism, maybe on a more local level if needed. Um, So in Doctrine and Covenants 121, verse 43, it says, you know, you can reprove betimes with sharpness when moved upon by the Holy Ghost and then showing forth afterwards an increase of love toward him whom thou hast reproved, lest he esteem thee to be his enemy. And on top of that, I think it is very wise also to give criticism if it is needed privately. So I've had times in, oh, actually only one time I can think of where one of our elders quorum pra- uh, classes, something that was said that kind of bothered me. Um, I felt like it, it wasn't consistent with the scriptures and it bothered me enough to call the elders quorum president afterward. And I just talked with him and it was a good conversation. I just told him my concern and, um, and we talked it out a bit, but I think that's a, a good way to do it. And sometimes in class, you know, you can just bring it up during the class if it's a discussion-based thing. But um, yeah, man, the, the nature of criticism in general, it's so broad. It's hard to really <laughs> encompass, you know, our response to cater our response to every single criticism that could be given right now. You know, like correcting a doctrinal issue is one thing, but how many other things and issues are there that people could be criticizing about? Yeah, yeah. Amen to that. And, and that's the thing is just like you were saying, there's a time and a place to stand up for your beliefs and for the truth and for Jesus Christ and your testimony and, and everything else that goes with it. But when it comes to just blatant accusations to try to criticize people to demoralize or, or, you know, destabilize their power or authority or other people's view of them, uh, that's, that's not a good path to tread. And it will, as Joseph Smith says, lead you to apostasy. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think it's even interesting just to add a, a quick comment um, that if I remember correctly, even one of uh, even the title Satan, if I remember right, and it might be Hebrew or Greek, but but it literally means uh, accuser. And that's not what what uh, we are intended to go about doing to simply go around trying to bring other people down, rather bring them up. And, and sometimes we have to do that through uh, like like you uh, mentioned, you know, to be, be prove them in times of sharpness, right? God does love those whom he chasteneth, and uh, there's a time and a place and a way to do that. Right. Well put. Yeah, and one little example to throw on top, and again, there are many examples. We're not going to hit all of them, but one that comes to my mind is someone in our last ward, um, this was around the time they were renovating the Manti Temple, I believe, or maybe it was the Salt Lake one, and there's a lot of artwork in there. I think it was Salt Lake. 
And some of the artwork made by the pioneers or during the construction of the Salt Lake Temple got ruined when they were, you know, moving it around. And um, some people had a really big fit about this. And I remember one lady in our ward, her post about it was just saying, ah, oh, you know, they have all these billions of dollars. It was just after the church's like assets were quantified uh, online, you know, someone uh, posted that. And so anyway, she's like, you know, they have all these billions of dollars and they can't even take care of this. Um, you know, these pictures, the pioneers are probably rolling over in their graves sick at this, you know, ill treatment. And she was criticizing the brethren. And I thought that was very misplaced and very dangerous um, as a member who is endowed and, you know, trying to be in good standing. I, that, that feels very improper. And I believe that that is something that, you know, not only were the pioneers probably not rolling around in their graves at that, they were probably rolling in their, around in their graves at, you know, her, a descendant, <laughs> uh, you know, of theirs criticizing the anointed. You know, they sacrifice everything so that we can have this doctrine. Um, anyway, that's going on a tangent, but there, you know, there are various kind of issues that can happen, but I, I think we've given some, some kind of general advice. Um, but if you want to go and delve into more details, I know there's lots of stuff online. There's a whole, like a fair Latter-day Saint article on this, uh, hitting from the apologetics standpoint, if you want to really go into the details. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, sometimes we might feel that we have what we would consider a valid criticism of the brethren. Right. And, uh, I don't know. I, I do think that we ought to be cautious and, and just keep with basic principles. Our, our, our job is not to go around and, and try to, you know, condemn and, and criticize everyone that's that's not the role of the gospel the gospel is to build and that's not to say the brethren are perfect like we've mentioned surely they have faults um joseph smith did Brigham young did john taylor all the way through uh, to every last president of the church and the quorum of the 12 but god works as elder holland says so beautifully with perfect men accomplishing his perfect work well put all right well i think we've hit that one pretty well um, let's move on to the next one. And I, uh, we didn't address this at the beginning, but I should say this is, I'll take blame for this, but this episode is going to be a little shorter, uh, just with the timetable I'm working with tonight. So we'll try to fit in, um, if we can, the next two questions, if not, um, we'll just hit this next one. It's a really good one. So anyway, if you guys are wondering why you're cut short here, I take the blame, but hopefully it'll <laughs> still be good and worthwhile. All right, Kate, you ready for this next one? Sure. Send it on over. All right. Looks like I wrote it because it's too long. <laughs> Why does Jehovah in the Old Testament seem to be volatile, vengeful, jealous, while Jesus in the New Testament seems to be more loving, humble, and merciful? Aren't they the same unchanging person? And is it true, as some say, that Jehovah changed his mind and became more merciful after experiencing mortality and seeing how difficult life was for us fallen mortals? Hmm. Uh, okay. Interesting. I will say this. I'll, I'll, I'll try to address the, the second one first. Um, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's, that's uh, written in scripture in numerous different places. And if you weren't, you wouldn't be God. Um, now, that being said, I think th there's some important things to notice. I think, uh, like even looking at the Old Testament, most of what we have in the Old Testament is people living under a lower law, right? Under the law of Moses. And that law of Moses does entail different things, more strict rights, more 
or less blessings in, in a real way. They, I mean, one elder or the high priest once a year was able to enter into the, the Holy of Holies while today um, every single member of the church that is worthy and able is able to. Um, and I, I don't know. I think that we can look at this and we can say, well, yeah, we do have some a little bit different occasions, obviously, in the Old Testament where God does seem to bring down his wrath and burn cities and, and flood the earth and do all these uh, kind of vengeful things comparatively to this uh, New Testament God that we see. Um, but I would even go so far as to say that that's not necessarily true. And I think if, if there's a book of scripture that we can look at that shows a equal and level-headed view of the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's the Book of Mormon, a, a book of scripture given to us that literally covers both episodes of time. Uh, it covers 600 BC all the way past even after the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, and, and I think as we look through that book of scripture, we can see a little bit more clearly that God really is the same in both time periods. And that's just kind of where I wanted to start out. What are your thoughts, Mike? Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think my answer to this question of whether or why God is, you know, seems all justice in the Old Testament and all mercy in the New Testament my response would be to flip the question on its head and say, what makes you think that's the case? Um, because I think you may not be reading the entirety of scripture, or you may be um, taking little snippets and using that to interpret the whole. Um, a lot of people do this with the New T Testament, with uh, the first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. You know, they say, you know, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, and the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And, you know, it's all about making analogies of flowers and daisies and birds. And it's like, oh, this is so nice and sweet. Um, but then, well, did you finish reading, you know, where he's talking about um, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my fathers in who is in heaven. And he even says, you know, many will say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Basically saying even believers um, will not be entered into the kingdom of heaven if they aren't doing righteous works. And uh, I heard one preacher I was listening to this past week on this topic who was saying that hell is talked about um, a staggeringly more amount in the New Testament. That's pretty much all it's talked. Uh, the, the main place where hell is talked about is in the New Testament. Um, and so, yeah, the, the New Testament, if you read it and especially go through the Pauline epistles and Romans and stuff, it, yeah, there is the grace side. There is the you know, wonderful sacrifice of Jesus Christ that's hit on. But there's a lot of very bold doctrine. And also in the Old Testament, like you said, Cade, with the Book of Mormon, especially hitting on that side, God is very merciful in the Old Testament. Uh, many times he spares them from their enemies and uh, does great miracles to, to redeem people and to, to redeem the, you know, the children of Israel. So, yeah, that's my answer. I would flip the question on its head and say, I, I don't think that that is the case. The, the suppositions coming into this question are wrong. Amen. I don't think I could have said it any better myself. Um, and, and I think you can kind of see those same principles throughout the Old Testament, too, that um, in, in a lot of these times where you see God showing forth his justice or his anger or his wrath, um, that it's the same principle that's found in the Book of Mormon, right? That uh, he'd rather that one man perish than an entire nation dwindle in unbelief, right? That essentially he sometimes, those who are wicked have called upon the, the wrath and indignation of God and uh, he will not stay his hand any longer unless there be, you know, whether it's a hundred men left in a, a wicked city or 50 or 10, and that he will 
pull forth his his wrath and his justice to save the righteous. Yeah. And do you think, Cade, that most of the differences we see um, come down to difference in context or situations? Like, do you think God was being more severe to the children of Israel right after they came out of Egypt because that was the situation they were in or because they came out of this context of, you know, all these pagan gods or Egyptian gods who didn't have morals. There was no sense of justice with those gods and God really needed to pound in that. I am a God who cares about justice deeply or, you know, and uh, if, you know, if he only hit the mercy side, maybe they would, I don't know, maybe there was some incorrect doctrine that they kind of were believing in their culture so I don't know. Do you think it's just the the situation might be changing, and that's where the different behavior from God is coming from? Yeah, yeah, and I and I think that's all throughout Scripture that you know, depending on who's doing what, right? God respects him that worketh righteousness in his nation, right? Is is, is what the, the Scriptures teach. But um, it really does come down to situational occasions, right? Like you look at someone like like uh, a Paul or or Saul at the time, right? He's walking down and he's going on his way to murder. Or, or condemn these brethren of the church, right? And what happens to him? Does he get burned in fire and brimstone like those of Sodom and Gomorrah who were doing terrible deeds as well? Obviously somewhat different deeds, and so maybe it's not a perfect analogy, but but I, I think God is perfectly just and perfectly merciful, though we don't always see the fullness of the situation like you're uh, kind of hinting at, that he really does go about and accomplish his work in his way, and his way has been the same since the beginning. Um, though we do not have a complete text of all Old Testament accounts, nor New Testament, um, and even in our day, I think it's a, it's a good time to kind of see how God works. Yeah, agreed. Well, I think a, a really good answer, like you're saying, is the Book of Mormon. Again, I'm just thinking about that as you're talking because, um, you know, in the Old Testament portion of the Book of Mormon and the New Testament era, um, God's treatment to them, you, you see it like not change at all, right? It's consistent. And I think that's because the situation is kind of similar the whole time. But even you could consider, you know, one of God's most uh, severe acts of his wrath against the Nephites is, you know, allowing the Lamanites to utterly destroy them. And that was after Jesus, that was new Testament times. So yeah, I, I think the book of Mormon shows a pretty consistent um, depiction of, of God's behavior or balancing justice and mercy. So yeah, I, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that it's an important doctrine to, to remember that uh, God doesn't change though our situations and circumstances and our faith and our unbelief and our wickedness, uh, that changes. But uh, his, his devotion to us um, remains constant, right? Uh, he, he is, as Doctrine and Covenants 82 puts it, is bound so long as we do what, we, what he says, but as long as we do not do what he says, we have no promise. Um, and it really does come down to situation by situation, right? Sometimes when we do something wrong, we will be chastised in that moment, and sometimes we won't. We live in a, a somewhat volatile sphere down here, and um, I think it's it's like you said, hard to go about and just say, "Well, where where are you getting this new versus Old Testament God from?" And they are the same, right? The, the same God who calls down fire is the same one that in Acts five um, strikes down those, you know, Sephira and, and his wife uh, for lying about their tithing, right? Exactly. Yeah. Great example. Okay. Well, I like that. I think we hit that one pretty well. Um, K, 
Kate, do you want to approach this last question? We got about 10 minutes left before I got to wrap up. Is that a uh, sufficient time? We going, uh, we can, we can shoot for fast it. Mode? Okay. <laughs> let's see. This, this could be a big one. I know we could talk about this for an okay. hour, but All right, let's well, try it. Okay. So the question is this, uh, does God love everyone? If so, does he love them? Does he love everyone the same amount? All right. The too long didn't read version. Um, <laughs> <laughs> No and no. I'm <laughs> just kidding. Oh, okay, boy. sounds like a good rap. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, this is a hard one. And I think it's a loaded question because we're talking about love. You know, what is love? Oh, I don't know. Like, it, it could be a million different things. And I know in Greek, there are the, you know, different words you could use that they love is translated from um, in the New Testament. And in Hebrew, I'm sure m- many as well. So sometimes it's kind of ambiguous what we're referring to. So the question, you know, if we want a precise answer, we got to ask a precise question. And this question is not precise. Um, but does God, let's, let's start with this. Is God the father? Does, does he have parental love for everyone? Yes, I'm, I'm sure, you know, to some degree, he does have parental love for all his children. He is a perfect God. He's a perfect father. Um, but the kind of love that the scriptures talks about is often paired or coupled with favor and blessings. Um, you know, like if you just want nominal love, like you just want to know that God loves you. And that's, that's the reason for, you know, him talking about this issue is just because you want to know he loves you. That's a different question because for all intents and purposes, that's, that's almost meaningless. You know, do you have daddy problems and you just need a dad to love you? Like, okay, that's good. But God's love, if it's going to like merit you anything, it has to be coupled with those blessings and those promises and the, the affection of the father. And you cannot get that if you are not um, willing to receive his spirit and follow his commandments. Um, in John, that's what he talks about. And you, you, you get a lot of love in the old or in the new Testament, you know, in John, which is written to the members who are already presumably keeping the commandments or they've entered into the path. They don't talk so much about the love um, when he's talking to the Gentiles or the non-believers. Um, so the audience there is presumably church members. Um, so I think love becomes a, a very relevant issue and something that um, we can talk a lot about when you've entered into the path. But if you're a heathen nation, I feel like b- based on the way the scriptures use the term, no, we shouldn't say that he loves everyone. In fact, he says he hated the, the Lamanites when they were wicked. And he, you know, he even said, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. And, uh, you know, there, there are things that we can do to earn God's love, to deserve it. Um, and we kind of hit on this before when we talked about conditionality of love. But anyway, I've said enough for the start. So since we don't have a ton of, ton of time, Cade, take it away. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I think you're hitting the nail on the head right there. Um, that, that literally as he is our father, yeah, he, he has to have some sort of love right to to all of his creations right he is the emanating source of love all love that is ever experienced literally comes from him and 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 i think getting kind of that same point that you're making right what 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 father especially a father who has power and knowledge over all things uh doesn't give good gifts to his children right what you know who, who asks for bread and gives them a rock right um I, I don't know. I, I think that that's kind of what it gets down to more than anything else is, uh, yeah, he loves everyone to a degree um, where he's willing to bless them. 
but that love is always able to be rejected based off of the conditions that we do. And uh, I don't know. I, I think that sometimes we get so caught up, like you said, in wondering, oh, well, do we, does he love us? Well, what does it matter if he loves you if, if he doesn't bless you, right? If, if the God Almighty <laughs> decides to leave you in your grave when you die so you're never resurrected or <laughs> to never return to his presence, at very least to be judged by him in some last day, right? Which we know are the two unconditional parts of his love that every single person will receive, that everyone will be resurrected and return to his presence, um, at least for judgment. Um, and, and getting to that same point, the conditional part of God's love is almost exclusively, if not exclusively, I've not seen it yet, nor do I expect to see it. So I'll, I'll just go ahead and say it's exclusively attached to, like you said, blessings. And usually that blessing includes um, and it's not limited to uh, peace in this life and eternal life in the world to come. Yeah, well put. Um, and I think, like you, you're kind of reiterating that point of attaching blessings and favor to the love. You know, even in relationships with with family members or your spouse or um, any loving relationship in your life, that loving relationship must be manifest, right? Like. That's how we know that someone loves us. They manifest it to us. You can't um, depend upon this, you know, unexhaustible source of just lovey-dovey, you know, like essence alone. It has to be manifest through actions. Um, you know, so <laughs> I'm just trying to pound on the point of like, what good is, why do you want God's love so much? You know, those signs you see on the side of the road that say, Jesus loves you. It's like, I don't know. I feel like, the point can do good, I, I suppose, but I think if we want to be accurate with it, you know, he loves those who keep his commandments and who are his people. Um, when Jesus addressed the Sadducees and Pharisees, he said, your father is the devil. And um, if you were, you know, the children of my father, you would do the works of my father. Um, but you're not. You're the children of the devil. And hence, I think they absolve themselves of the love of the father. Um and they become children of the devil. And I think that is the state of the wicked. So we, if you want to be the children of the father, you have to do the, the works of the father that, that he commands us. So I, anyway, this, this is kind of a hard one to hit on a, uh, in just a small amount of time. But, um, and I just said something we already said before, Kate. But do you have any extra thoughts that come to your mind? Uh, any other angles you think we should hit on this? Uh, yeah, no, I, I mean, I'll, I'm going to just reiterate that same point that we've made probably four times. <laughs> Great. Go, go ahead. Let's do it another time. <laughs> but, but in a real sense, right? If you love me, keep my commandments, right? And, and if he loves us, what does he do for us as well? He, he blesses us, right? The, the entire purpose of God is to exalt his children. That, that is his work. It is his glory. It's what he goes about doing. And it's what we will go about doing in the eternities. And because that is his work, because his entire purpose, it revolves around helping us. Um, the way that he conditions us to the, so that he knows how we love him is if we follow that same path, right? If we love him, we will keep his commandments. And then, right, as it says, you know, then, then will my father love you, right? And that love, like you said, I don't think it changes anymore from the, the Gentile nation or uh, even the Israel nation or the Pharisees or the Sadducees, right? I think God has this general love for all of his creation, right? That's pretty well manifested everywhere. If you repent and come unto him, he will bless you. And it's a very simple path and it's a very simple doctrine. And I think sometimes we get so confused in all these intricacies that that don't really matter. Um, 
that love is inevitably tied to blessings. If we love someone in this life, we will do things for them. We will either spend time, words of affirmation. We will go and we will do things. We will do whatever we can to some degree or another um, to help them, right? Even Jesus says, you know, greater love hath no man than this to, to lay down his life for his friends, right? That, that true love, true devotion um, is conditioned upon action, upon devotion, upon actually portraying that love through some sort of blessing, whether whether or not it be time or or material goods or anything else. But it is always attached to something. And so it is with God's love to us. That, yeah, we could talk about this abstract love that God has for every single creature and every single being, no matter how wicked or righteous they are, which does exist. Um, but that love really does no good if it's not attached to something. Yeah, I will, I will go so far as to even apply the scriptures with a modification of James here, but love without works is dead. <laughs> I, I think it applies. But uh, anyway, yeah, I, I agree, Kate. I, um, so yeah, I, I, like, I like this because I feel like it's irrelevant. I think in our culture today, we, our culture really wants to provoke um, the kind of accept me for who I am you know, love the sinner, but hate the sin, which by the way, that's not in the Bible anywhere. Um, but you know, it's like, I want you to just love me as I am, even if I'm directly harming you or resisting you or not following what you say, you know, as I say this to God, um, and it doesn't work that way. You know, you can't, you can't live however you want, uh, you know, and have your cake and eat it too. Um, there are direct consequences of your actions. And if you want to have love for the father, by the way, you, you, if you want to love the father and, or you feel like you do love him, but you don't keep the commandments, you're a liar. That's what John says in first John <laughs> says he that, you know, uh, saith he love God, but keeping not the commandments is a liar. Um, and inversely, you know, if, if you want to be loved of the father, I, I think to some degree, you know, we've, we've already fleshed this out a bit, but you got to keep the commandments or at least strive to, you know, have the willing heart. Uh, believe in Jesus Christ, repent, follow the, the gospel that he's preached in the scriptures. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, I think we did a pretty bang up job at kind of wrapping that up in such a short time. So I'm, I'm fairly impressed because that could wow, be... What's with you with your British slang? <laughs> you watching Peppa Pig? That's where I learned my British slang. Is it? My daughter sometimes. Well, I don't think she watches it anymore, but yeah, you're a few times on there. Anyway tangent i like british slang kate so that's okay use it anytime good good but i don't know i'm, I'm, I'm glad we wrapped that up as, as quickly as we did yeah um, and, and 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 i i think it's important that we that we make note of the the importance of the things that we talk about you know uh, the you know it, it might not seem like the most critical thing in your life to to wonder about criticizing the the brethren of the church or uh, seeing the differences between God, but but the base or or even you know the the love this abstract love that we often talk about, um, but but all of these things in a real way can define the way you live your every single day life. That if you have a different foundation based on things that are wrong, your life will be very different. If you really have this idea that God will love and exalt you regardless of what you do, regardless of who you desire to be, and regardless of everything that you are. It, it, it's going to lead you down a path that's wrong. 
if if your entire purpose is to go about and criticize and demoralize and try to <laughs> revolt against the leaders of the church, you're going to head down a path that's going to lead you to hell. That's that's just the simple answer of, of these things. And the one thing that we can be assured of is that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That uh, though sometimes in Scripture we might see him in some ways that acts more vengeful in older texts than in newer, we can be assured as we truly search through those texts and grow our relationship with him that he is the same in those books as much as he is today. And as we go about trying to worship him and keep his commandments, we will receive those blessings and that love from him um, and eventually, hopefully, obtain that exaltation. Nice. Well, that's a great bow to put on top of everything. I, I like it tied all together. And um, yeah, I, I really like your views, Cade. Thanks as always for for talking during this, sharing your your thoughts and insights. And I hope you guys enjoyed this episode, even though it's a little more concise or or at least shorter. Uh, we try to be concise, but um, yeah, we'll have another episode for you guys next week. Feel free to ask us more questions. If there's a link in the show notes, if you guys would like to do that, and we'll talk to you guys next week.